This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Eothen. Disease in Fantasy Worlds. Ken Writes About Stuff. And Graham Hancock. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The sound of Vivaldi, the overstuffed leatherette chairs, the possibly dead Englishman in a corner, the row of leather-bound volumes tell us we have entered the tasteful public domain confines of the book hut. And Robin, you have a book recommendation that, quite frankly, struck me as coming out of 40 degrees off nowhere, so why don't you set it up? So I'd like to talk about Eothen, which is an early classic of the travel writing genre, and just a delight to read, and therefore a paragon of exemplitude, as it were, for those of us who are building or describing imaginary worlds, or even describing past periods in our own history. So the author of this book, Eothen, uh, is a man named Alexander William Kinglake. He recounts the details of his trip to the Near East in 1834. The book was published in 1844. Kinglake is also really well known among people who know the Crimean War as the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> those guys. <laughs> those guys. As the author of a um, multi-volume, early, super definitive history of the Crimean War, which I gather experts on the Crimean War must always grapple with. Uh, were you familiar with him at all before you uh, this name popped up on your radar in preparation for this week's show? If, if I'd run into him, it would have been in the Crimean War context, and it would have been in the context of someone... In you know in, in a footnote or a or a bibliographic entry saying of course the initial source for the Crimean War is Kinglake but and then going on to describe the source that they would are actually trying to refute because no one gets tenure from arguing with a guy who was writing in you know the 1860s right so this book is uh, you know it's written in 1844 and you mentioned the public domain so this is still in print for those of you who like books on paper uh, but it's also of course available on. Gutenberg's. You can go over to gutenberg.org and download it in your e-format of choice. And this uh, book, which I discovered through a a book of A.S. Byatz, was sort of mentioned in uh, passing. And I, due to its freeness in part, uh, downloaded it. And I was captivated by its style. It's uh, written in the early part of the 19th century, and it's got this uh, beautifully crisp and extremely witty and evocative way of describing the people and places that he goes to visit. And, for example, as he is uh, initially crossing the border from the uh, Balkans into the Ottoman Empire, he uh, runs into the uh, locals and describes their armaments as follows. This cincture enclosed a whole bundle of weapons. No man bore less than one brace of immensely long pistols, and a yatagan, or cutlass, with a dagger or two of various shapes and sizes. Most of these arms were inlaid with silver and highly burnished, so that they contrasted shiningly with the decayed grandeur of the garments to which they were attached. This carefulness of his arms is a point of honor with the Osman Lee, who never allows his bright yatagan to suffer from his own adversity. So he has this... uh, beautiful style. He creates these fantastic word pictures, and there's a marvelous wit that runs through it. Like most true travel books, there isn't a huge through line carrying you through the book, except that he is recounting uh, his travels along the way. If you are looking to judge him by the standards of his time as a Englishmen at the height of empire entering foreign territories, he comes off pretty well. He is equally ready to score satirical points off of his homeland of England as he is 
off the various uh, people and cultures that he encounters. If you wish to score him by 21st century uh, cultural sensitivity, of course, you will find ways to police his discourse. His uh, take on Islam and the people that he runs into is uh, pretty tolerant for the era, but he is not tolerant of its um, moralism and sense of tight, oppressive social control. Uh, also, some of his uh, comments on uh, women are uh, pre-feminist. He at one point observes that uh, he really only has time for attractive women. But uh, along the way, if you're willing to uh, see past these things and accept him as a man of his time, uh, he comes across as uh, uh, pretty accepting. And, uh, and the pages just really redound with great uh, detail and evocation of setting. And anyone who wants to write a passage of setting book, whether you're writing a piece of fiction where you're evoking an imaginary pl place or a pastime, or whether you are writing what are essentially the imaginary travel guides that you find in a lot of role-playing supplements, you are going to find a lot of inspiration. And if you just sort of you know, dip into a few random pages of this book before you start your day's work, you will find perhaps an additional sparkle at attaching to them. The um, I, I was uh, reading it when you put it on our uh, our show schedule and found myself actually having to sort of close the web page that it was on just so that I didn't read the entire thing instead of get any work done. Uh, the, 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 obviously the prose is, is, uh, infectious in the way that you talk about. I, I read somewhere that, uh, that, uh, Winston Churchill, when people would ask him how to get a good prose style, would say, read Kinglake. And so I, I think that, uh, this is the sort of thing that might make you want to find an eight volume history of the Crimean War, too, if he's as good on that as he is on sort of his, uh, his journey. Like, like a lot of travel narrative, um, a lot of it is sort of slightly disguised bragging. Um, but he also does um, re reveal something of himself. There's a really almost Lovecraftian passage in his section on the pyramids where he describes um, uh, his uh, being oppressed to distraction by the presence of a single and abstract idea, the idea of solid immensity. It seemed to me in my agonies that the horror of this visitation arose from its coming upon me without form or shape, that the close presence of the direst monster ever bred in hell would have been a thousand times more tolerable than that simple idea of solid size. My aching mind was fixed and riveted down upon the mere quality of vastness, 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 and was not permitted to invest it with any particular object. Which is, I mean, that's just great. I mean, that that's good stuff. I mean, in coming, you know, 20 years before Bulwer-Lytton, is talking about that same sort of thing as a as a psychic uh, impulse, and before William James talks about the vastation, it's it's really interesting to sort of see that poke its head up. And there's other pieces like that when he talks about visiting uh, Lady Hester Stanhope, who is the um, I want I believe she was the aunt of the Lord Stanhope who got himself involved in the Casper Hauser mystery, but she's uh, she had decided that she just wanted to live in the desert and ignore Europeans, which seems like excellent policy, really. <laughs> and um, uh, she, however, because of her uh, time in the desert, she was only um, dealing with dervishes and uh, mystics. And so she had come to decide that magic was real because that was the only people she ever talked to were people who believed in magic. And so she didn't see any Europeans, but because she was related to uh, King Lake, she made an exception for him. And so in between talking about magic, she was asking about their common relatives and what they were up to. So that's that's a pretty great chapter just by itself. Yeah, she's a fascinating character who would be uh, great to uh, rip off as a protagonist for a series of uh, 19th century pulp adventures. She started out, she was actually the uh, designated hostess for uh, Pip the Younger. And uh, and she knew uh, Byron originally. And uh, by the time that you meet her as in, in this as uh, sort of the Near Eastern equivalent of Miss Havisham locked up <laughs> in her Near Eastern redoubt uh, in Lebanon, the surrounding tribesfolk have decided that she is a, a sorceress of vast power, and this is basically why they leave her alone. And at the time, it was kind of believed that she was ruling over them with an iron fist, where it was more a case of they were keeping their distance from her. But uh, she alone is just a, a really fascinating uh, character who would be ripe for theft. The hazard of this segment is actually just that this would turn into 
Robin and Ken read you excerpts from Eofin. That having said, I'm going to read you a long <laughs> excerpt from Eofin. And, and this I will title, The Most English Story Ever Told. Uh, so he has uh, been traveling for many days with his small pack of attendants on camelback and has met no other soul. When you've traveled for days and days over an eastern desert without meeting the likeness of a human being, and then at last see an English shooting jacket and his servant come listlessly slouching along from out the forward horizon, you stare at the wide unproportion between this slender company and the boundless plains of sand through which they are keeping their way. This Englishman, as I afterwards found, was a military man returning to his country from India and crossing the desert at this part in order to go through Palestine. As for me, I had come pretty straight from England, and so here we met in the wilderness at about halfway from our respective starting points. As we approached each other, it became with me a question whether we should speak. I thought it likely that the stranger would accost me, and in the event of his doing so, I was quite ready to be as sociable and chatty as I could be according to my nature, but still, I could not think of anything particular that I had to say to him. Of course, among civilized people, the not having anything to say is no excuse at all for not speaking, but I was shy and indolent, and I felt no great wish to stop and talk like a morning visitor in the midst of these broad solitudes. The traveler perhaps felt as I did, for except that we lifted our hands to our caps and waved our arms in courtesy, we passed each other as if we had passed in Bond Street. <laughs> Our attendants, however, were not to be cheated of the delight that they felt in speaking to new listeners and hearing fresh voices once more. The masters, therefore, had no sooner passed each other than their respective servants quietly stopped and entered into conversation. As soon as my camel found that her companions were not following her, she caught the social feeling and refused to go on. I felt the absurdity of the situation and determined to accost the stranger, if only to avoid the awkwardness of remaining stuck fast in the desert whilst our servants were amusing themselves. When with this intent I turned round my camel, I found that the gallant officer who had passed me by about thirty or forty yards was exactly in the same predicament as myself. I put my now willing camel in motion and rode up towards the stranger, who, seeing this, followed my example and came forward to meet me. He was the first to speak. He was much too courteous to address me as if he admitted the possibility of my wishing to accost him from any feeling of mere sociability or civilian-like love of vain talk. On the contrary, he at once attributed my advances to a laudable wish of acquiring statistical information, and accordingly, when we got within speaking distance, he said, I dare say you wish to know how the plague is going on at Cairo. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the most English story ever told. I found when I was uh, reading it that, uh, I, I, and I don't know if it's anything other than just the sensible use of adjectives and adverbs, but it reminded me to a degree of, of the way that Vance writes about stuff. Do you know if Jack Vance was an Ethan fan, or do you think it was just something that was in the air when uh, young Jack Vance was reading things in the 1920s? I do not know it for a fact, but I would be completely unstartled to uh, learn that he was a fan of uh, King Lake. He was himself a knockabout traveler, and uh, I would not be surprised to know if while he was in the Merchant Marine or whatever that he uh, ran across a copy of this. And certainly, as a fan of Vance, uh, one might uh, understand my love for this book. This is a little less ornate than Vance, but uh, no less evocative. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, basically, I guess the, the point I'm making by talking about this book is, first of all, hey, read this book. It's it's cool. Um, and secondly, that it's a, a great model for uh, writing uh, place and time. And he's got as great an eye for the descriptions of vistas and places as, uh, but even more so, as you suggest in the excerpt that you read, he has this sense of the emotional impact of places. And that's why this is more than just a travelogue that lists a bunch of places that he went to. He has this great sense of setting scenes, and there's this sort of intense uh, drama often with the people that he uh, becomes involved with. There's uh, one point where he uh, mistakenly hires a uh, Christian rather than a uh, Muslim 
a guide to take him to a particular place, despite the low esteem in which the local Christians are held. And indeed, he's trying to lure him out to be bushwhacked. And so there's some exciting suspense there. Uh, there's a really uh, moving account of uh, uh, once he visits a, a city struck by uh, cholera and finds that the uh, local Christian monks there are sort of going out one by one to deliver last rites to believers as they are dying. And then, indeed, the next monk drops dead, and then the next one comes up in line, sort of like uh, soldiers storming Normandy Beach. Uh, and so this has this uh, sort of ancient, otherworldly, really evocative, moving quality of a time that was uh, not so long ago. It's only a century and a half, but in many other ways is sort of a, a world away. And the limpid quality of his prose seems much more modern than that. You're not going to mistake it for someone writing today, but unlike a lot of people even writing later in the Victorian era, this is really clear prose. And even when there's a sentence that lasts for a couple of pages, it's perfectly formed and perfectly justifies itself and is really beautiful. And it's the, again, the, the sense of uh, not just poignancy, but wit that animates the whole thing, I think makes it well worth uh, checking out for anyone who ever wants to describe a place or a cultural detail. Yeah, I, I think uh, since you're talking about uh, the plague and, uh, the, the, as you mentioned, the wit of the story, there's there's one last little bit that uh, I think is, is worth mentioning. It's uh, He's in Constantinople and he meets a, 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 a one apparently a, a, a very uh, wealthy or respectable or noble uh, Muslim woman and uh, she's, she looks around to make sure that there's no other Muslim men watching, just her servants. And so she takes her, her yashmak aside and looks at him. And, of course, he falls madly in love with her because she's so beautiful. You smile at pretty women. You turn pale before the beauty that is great enough to have dominion over you. She sees and exults in your giddiness. She sees and smiles. Then presently, with a sudden movement, she lays her blushing fingers upon your arm and cries out, You moorjock! Plague, meaning, here is a present of the plague for you. This is her notion of a witticism. It is a very old piece of fun, no doubt. Quite an oriental Joe Miller. But the Turks are fondly attached not only to the institutions, but also to the jokes of their ancestors. So the lady's silvery laugh rings joyously in your ears, and the mirth of her women is boisterous and fresh, as though the bright idea of giving the plague to a Christian had newly lit upon the earth. <laughs> There's no way Jack Vance has not read that book. I mean, that's, that's it's just, it, it's such a great bit. I mean, it, it covers everything. I mean, it's, it's got love, it's got death, it's got humor, it's got uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the narrator being in a faintly ridiculous position, but still maintaining sort of a cultural superiority. It, it's, it's the, it, it's such a great paragraph, and there's just page upon page upon page of stuff like this in Ethan. I, I thank you very much for um, uh, pointing me at it, and I think that um, the uh, the fact that he's going through uh, these cities through Cairo and, and Constantinople and, and the Holy Land uh, during, as you mentioned, several outbreaks of overlapping plagues, uh, he he says that it adds a certain color to the to the, to the trip, which I suppose it does in a weird and horrible way. Uh, not only that, but it lends us a segue to our next segment. On the topic of plague, perhaps it is time to investigate the effects of the plague on a different batch of bones, the bones we roll in the gaming hut. Um, plague is, uh, <laughs> Eothan to the contrary, not usually seen as a fun uh, activity, and so therefore, pandemic aside, games involving plague are few and far between, but it is a fairly crucial difference between uh, the actual past and the sort of Dungeons and Dragified past. Uh, Robin, do you think that there's more to it than just the fact that uh, one-sixth of everyone in the D&D world has uh, cure light wounds and probably uh, of a twentieth of them all have cure disease? Yeah, I think that you've, you've hit on the two intertwined uh, reasons why this is one of the huge differences between real medieval and ancient cultures and the way that we refract those medieval and ancient cultures into popular gaming worlds. And the, the first of these is the simulationist impulse that builds outwards, uh, builds an entire reality and extrapolates it based on the magic that it is worth detailing in a 
combat-heavy fantasy game, so that you will notice that if you look at a D&D spell list, that it is full of spells that are useful for the sorts of things that player characters do on adventures. And there's a whole raft of healing spells, including a cure disease spell in earlier editions, and later editions have even folded disease even further out of the experience as it's become, D&D has become even more focused on uh, wish fulfillment and less on the hard slog of historical reality than even the first versions were. So if you have cure disease as an apparently commonplace technology, that then allows you to dispense with the fact that up until the antibiotic window opened, and hopefully will uh, not close anytime soon, uh, that these great waves of disease would roll through societies and utterly devastate them, not only the uh, bubonic plague, but uh, as in the example of Ethan cholera, which in, is never referred to, by the way, in the book as cholera. It's always just called the plague. I had to go, you know, look it up and confirm that it was what I thought it was, because, of course, that seems like a late entry for the bubonic plague, but was not at all a late time to be having cholera. So if you base what people in the world can do on what abilities adventurers have and assume that they are widespread, you get to write out the existence of disease, which is a huge factor in shaping how real ancient cultures interacted with one another and their tendency to collapse. Now, of course, it's also a massive bummer subject that makes stories hard to tell if you have a, a big ongoing plague in your fantasy adventure world that makes it very difficult for your characters to go out and interact with other characters. And as a change of pace, it might be a real aesthetic shock to the system to present a plague, but you will then have to, you know, sort of asterisk that and say that, you know, for whatever plot-driven reason, this plague is not amenable to the usual magics that we assume are extremely commonplace in a D&D world, and that that, in fact, could become your MacGuffin, that you find out whatever artifact or divine action or whatever it is that is suspending the usual efficacy of cure disease spells comes into play, and if you go and find that, you can lift the plague. But, of course, it's a huge difference in worldview between the modern day when people are free and able to move around and do things without a lot of the fears that stopped people from doing things in prior eras, and it's uh, something that not everyone uh, wishes to come to terms with, just the way that they don't want to come to terms with another huge difference between medieval society and D&D land, which is the political and moral and spiritual omnipresence of the church. Yeah, or uh, conversely with... Um the uh, fairly uh, degraded state of women in virtually every pre-modern society. Yeah, that's another uh, huge one. So, for, for example, in uh, Hillfolk, you get to design your ancient society, and almost invariably it turns into a gender egalitarian society because that's what people want to explore. And, you know, they it is called fantasy or alternate history for a reason, and part of it is that there are parts of the past that we are hungry to engage with, and there are other parts of the past that we do not want to engage with at all. So I think there you had a, a confluence of the tendency to extrapolate outwards from what you needed in a, a D&D context, which is you need frequent healing. You basically need enough uh, the characters to heal up at the end of every fight or to you know momentarily be set back by a disease, but then overcome it in order to keep going and keep moving through the narrative so they're not sidelined in recovery for hour after hour of game time. That's not real, but it's necessary in order to make the game work, just the way that having raised dead and resurrection spells fulfills an important game need, which is that if you've invested week after week after week of energy and time into your character, and he gets uh, killed in a way that feels unsatisfying in particular, you want to be able to have that just be something that requires you to pay a brief tax to bring him back in inconvenience and in uh, game currency, not something that forces you to roll up a new character. But what you don't then do, if you want to have 
a fantasy world that resembles in the slightest any real world uh, culture is extrapolate outwards to what society would be like if people from the common schmoes of the average adventuring party up to uh, kings and potentates can resurrect themselves. Uh, you've uh, The Stephen Brust uh, Jarek series, of course, which was originally, uh, I think, had some role-playing inspiration, plays with that idea and makes it part of the premise. But that is something that if you do extrapolate it from it, you have to make that the premise because it's just so incredibly different from anything that has ever existed in any society. Yeah, I think that there's so many different ways we can go uh, from, from that sort of opening uh, gambit. The first of all, the notion that uh, the plague acts uh, like you like you imply. If you have, if you put a plague into a fantasy game, it's usually not just there as a random encounter. It's usually there because there's a symbolic quality to the plague or a, or a fundamental meaning to it. It's a demon plague or it's a magical plague or it's something is going on that makes it part of the problem rather than sort of part of the backdrop. In the uh, uh, campaign uh, setting that I did for uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess Keylong. There's it, it's a war it's a war zone so there's plague and typhus uh, all over the place and also there's a magical contamination that is caused by the magical war happening over the mountain and that's the sort of uh, uh, foregrounded plague compared to the ongoing sort of yeah you're gonna get it and then you have to spend a cure disease spell or you have to uh, you know walk around with it a couple of uh, con points down while you are suffering from it type plague that we're more familiar with I think. Um, I, I do want to point out that the uh, the bubonic plague uh, makes a big comeback in 1855, so like a decade after Kingslake is writing and 20 years after he uh, does his traveling in what's called the third pandemic, which is sort of the third version of the Black Death. It's mostly uh, restricted to uh, Asia and to the sort of the tropical uh, world. It spreads to Australia and to um, the Caribbean uh, on steamships, uh, obviously with rats. But it uh, there's a there's a huge outbreak of it in Manchuria in the 1920s at the at sort of the tail in, impact of the of the of the third pandemic. So you can get your plague up into your modern day gaming with no real uh, historical problems. Uh, certainly, your pulp era uh, gamer can run across the the bubonic plague. It doesn't have to be a a weapons lab somewhere in a in a modern day spy game. And I think what that asterisk points out is just that the immensity of these uh, epidemic diseases and the incredible death tolls that they had, even the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1917, are just so staggering to us now that we uh, do not live in a world that appears to be threatened. There's certainly lots of uh, sort of mythic indications and fear and you you know you get your disease oriented disaster movies contagion i think is a, a really really great treatment of that for example but that it is so unthinkable that something so random and uncontrollable could kill so many people that as contemporary people we've kind of written that not only out of our fantasy but out of our conception of the past of of historical reality just because i think it is so incredibly counterintuitive, uh, even on sort of a spiritual symbolic level that something uh, random and meaningless not, would, you know, kill so many people and something beyond human agency would kill so many people. The closest we come to that, of course, in the contemporary era is the uh, AIDS epidemic. And, and that uh, was certainly a devastating horror. And that killed a fraction of the number of people who uh, were killed in these earlier waves of epidemic, which could, you know, completely alter the face of the society by depopulating it. By, uh, I mean, what would be the sort of the big case death tolls that just sort of really, uh, you know, more than decimated populations? Yeah, the the, the Black Death famously killed a third of Europe, um, and probably a similar percentage of China. Uh, the the third pandemic, uh, because it happened in a, in a world with at least some notion of germ theory. Uh, it only managed to kill 12 million people in China and India combined, and probably another eight or nine million people in the rest of the world. Uh, there's, I mean, the, but of course the the sort of the the plague is as as you allude to. It's not just the sheer numbers; it's also the demographic impact. If the plague is just uh, an outbreak restricted to one city, like the London Black Death was in 1665, uh, it can have that same impact on. You know, everyone you know in London might die tomorrow, and that's the same sort of impact I think that AIDS had 
on the gay community because, of course, obviously, it being a in, fairly insular subculture, they had that experience that they had in the plague year in 1665 of everyone that they knew might suddenly get the plague and die, and there wasn't, and they were just as helpless as um, uh, Peeps was to, um, uh, to 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 avoid the plague in in the 17th century. So, there's if you're looking for narratives of the plague year, which uh, to to apply to contemporary gaming, those sorts of memoirs, that sort that subculture. Uh, gay uh, writing about the AIDS experience, of which there is plenty, and lots of it is very good. Um, that might be a direction that you want to go to to see what is happening in a modern society where uh, this level of demographic uncertainty is suddenly open. Or, of course, you can go back to uh, Samuel Pepys and uh, and, and Daniel Defoe and uh, read an, a really good uh, set of discussions of sort of the the early modern response to to plague, which is a little more D and D era, and it will. It will read more uh, the way that you think your D&D characters are reacting than an actual uh, record of the Black Death, which is just going to be uh, like a really, really depressing farm report. Right. And it's it's telling to see that, you know, these works are works in the realm of classic nonfiction because the idea of being killed by a wave of disease is just so far removed from the ideas of agency that propel compelling fiction that it sort of has to mostly exist in in that realm yeah the exception of course being an existential narrative like camus the plague which you know right and and on a pulpy level you know the color out of space is right is, is yes. a plague story and another and another very much an existential plague um in that way so certainly uh you you do have to get away from agency because what happens if you're writing in, in a more traditional heroic uh, meter about the plague your character is almost always, either through auctorial fiat or some other hand-waving, not going to be suffering from the plague. And so you have a sense of immunity from it that you don't have necessarily in an actual plague experience or a plague narrative. Even if you, as player characters, are pretty sure that the GM isn't going to kill you if you just fumble a constitution roll while you're helping a, a beggar to his feet or something. It might be interesting as an experiment in fiction to, first of all, plot out a straightforward... Uh, adventure procedural story featuring a large cast of characters and then just at random times randomly determine uh, as you're creating the outline uh, without getting to cheat that uh, x number of your characters that you've established just randomly die and then what happens to the storyline what happens to the uh, people what happens to the reader's sense of attachment and sense of the contract between reader and creator that you're going to protect them to some degree and uh, you might you know kill off a character in a really poignant way that tells you a lot of the story but something where you're continually killing off characters just because disease does that could be mm -hmm. uh, something uh, really interesting yet uh, destabilizing at the same time yeah it, it could it could certainly make quite the um, uh, sort of uh, uh, large scope uh, dark fantasy or horror novel uh, to do something like that. I, I guess you get sort of that effect when um, you get a, a character, a, a writer like Scott Lynch, who will just kill your darlings because he knows they're your darlings. But the the sheer arbitrary uh, nature of a plague as opposed to an author who wants to put death scenes in is is something it's, it's something special and something different. And it obviously, it's that sort of theme that is going to be able to drive horror games especially. So even if your D&D world is not going to really be suitable to a plague, maybe your Ravenloft world is, or your Vampire the Masquerade or Requiem world is, or certainly your Call of Cthulhu world, as you mentioned, uh, Color Out of Space, the notion of a plague being some emanation of uh, Yogg-Sothoth or some alien uh, spore, like in the Andromeda strain, uh, that, that's spread by, you know, a, an opened-up Shoggoth tomb or something. Yeah, I think you've hit on it exactly, that if you take historical pandemic disease and put it in your fantasy world, you've created a dark fantasy world that mm -hmm. uh, just by being historical, you've gone dark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then no doubt you're cycling back around to Warhammer, uh, even as we speak. Um, I, I, should, I should mention that if you want to uh, sort of follow the interplay of plague and history in, the, in, in a more geopolitical uh, sense, the book to read is William McNeil's Plagues and Peoples, which is sort of the first real global history of plague as a thing that made a difference. There was a, a book by a guy named, I think, uh, Hans Zinser called Rats, Lice, and History that was sort of a bunch of, of cases, and McNeil really builds out a, a theory that is both historically and epidemiologically sound. And I recommend that to anyone who wants to think about plagues in their historical gaming, because 
uh, you're going to break your setting not just by killing off uh, 20% or a third of the NPCs. There's also going to be other big effects. Well, when we uh, reach the bibliography on a segment, we know we've come to a close. to depart from the thinly veiled promotionalism of the bulk of this podcast into completely unveiled and blatant promotionalism of our occasional segment, Among My Many Hats, in which either Ken and I discusses a project on the go, and in this case the project on the go is the eerily familiarly titled Ken Writes About Stuff. Hey Ken, what's this? Uh, Ken Writes About Stuff is a series of PDFs, each of them is going to be about... uh... 10 or 11 pages, probably, when layout and art is added, from uh, Pelgrane Press that I'm doing. I'm, do- I'm writing them once a month, and it is... Basically, the goal is to give uh, Simon more stuff with my name on it uh, that he can uh, sell and give me more things to write about as opposed to uh, grinding away in the bowels of the Pelgrane Manor uh, on long-form books that are going to see the light of day in months and months. That way, sort of, uh, everyone uh, sees me and sees Pelgrane, uh on a more regular basis. And the fun part of it is that I get to pretty much write about whatever I want to write about. So uh, the first one is called uh, Hideous Creatures Deep Ones, and it examines uh, the Deep Ones in the same sort of way that I examined the Gods and Monsters in the Trail of Cthulhu core book from all kinds of different possibly contradictory angles. And I think I I tried to bring some of the modularity of Knights Black Agents vampires to Deep Ones. There's a whole list of possible powers that Deep Ones might have now in your game. And so they stop being sort of the predictable, oh, right, it's a Deep One, fine, you know, uh, and become the what the hell did that thing do and how did it do that monster that Lovecraft sort of intended his monsters to have. Uh, every other uh, one of those PDFs is going to be in that series which we're calling Hideous Creatures, and it'll be a look at another uh, beast from the Lovecraftian Monstropedia as a... Uh, from from every angle that we can. So so that's every odd-numbered one is a Hideous Creature? Every odd-numbered Ken Writes About Stuff episode or issue or PDF or whatever you want to call it uh, will be a Hideous Creatures installment. And so, like I say, the last one was the Deep Ones. I think there's a, a poll up on the C page XX front page for the March... Uh, issue that uh, will let you vote to do, to say what you want me to do either next or very soon. And if a monster that I like is the winner of the poll, that will be the one. And if it is a monster that I like less well, I'll do it later. But it will definitely get put onto the onto the rotation. And are these just Lovecraftian monsters, or you have a wider monster brief? For for now, I'm going to stick with the monsters out of Lovecraft. I don't. I mean, obviously, I wrote a whole a whole book about vampires. So I, I'm. If you want to know what I think about vampires, you can dive right into Knights Black Agents. It's not impossible that I might start, you know, once I've sort of um, uh, rung some of the changes, that I might start looking at either uh, really great modern myths like the Chupacabra or really iconic classical uh, things like uh, the Frankenstein's monster slash flesh golem, whatever you want to call it, uh, that uh, sewed-together multivariant revenant type guy. Uh, you know, it, it's not impossible, but for right now, the hideous creatures are going to be Lovecraftian, and even if I do a, a standard monster, it's going to be done probably through a Lovecraftian lens, just because I think that that's more fun, and uh, certainly it's uh, how you should talk about monsters if you're going to be uh, doing it for uh, Trail of Cthulhu. Right, and, and Ken and Cthulhu, of course, go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Exactly. So the one that I'm doing right now is something I'm calling a gumshoe zoom uh, on martial arts, and a zoom is obviously something where you focus in suddenly on some aspect of the scene, and in this case, this will allow you to play uh, the sort of thriller in which they inexplicably stop shooting each other and have a big uh, um, uh, kickboxing fight or Krav Maga battle or Eskrimo, uh fight that just exists because fist fights and uh, physical fights are more interesting generally to watch 
than gunfights are, and certainly they can last longer, and uh, and you can build rhythms into them that are much harder to build into a good gunfight. Right, and with Gumshoe, the design challenge there is to look at what you want to emulate and bring that to the fore and bring the feeling of that to the fore without getting too crunchy. Yeah, no, the the the, the level of crunch is certainly in the martial arts is. Is, is purely narrative crunch, as in you say, I crunch his head against my kneecap. Um, <laughs> not so much, um, uh, that you have to tot up points and spend from a, from, from, you know, a menu and, you know, oh, it's plus two if I do this. It, it, no, it's, it's, it's gonna be very, very basic. It's uh, primarily encouraging narrative use of martial arts and then providing support for people who are not necessarily uh, big martial arts heads to sort of feel comfortable saying my guy has Penjack Silat even if they haven't even seen Marantau yet. Um, but I think that in general people who use this Zoom are going to be the kind of people who already like martial arts and are already familiar with martial arts uh, as it's used in thrillers or as it's used in uh, wuxia movies or whatever. And so they're going to have really strong uh, visuals going into the game, and that's going to make uh, playing it more fun, I think. And uh, do you have other things uh, on the distant horizon in mind for these uh, even-numbered installments? Uh, for the even-numbered installments, I think that it's uh, very likely that I will do maybe a micro-setting, that there will be a treatment of you know some uh, city or uh, building or graveyard or monument or something that I think makes a really good uh, a game element, or I might even do so much as a micro-campaign frame. This is about the same length that I'm writing the campaign frames in for the Swedish game magazine Phoenix, and I've managed to do a, a number of those in the same word count, so I think it shouldn't be impossible to do uh, sort of a miniature setting, something that occurs to me that maybe isn't going to support a whole uh, Gumshoe core book or even a whole supplement a la Bookhounds, but might be the sort of thing that you think, oh, I know, uh, uh, I'll run... Uh, Trail of Cthulhu, Voyager era, exploring Canada or something. And so you'd put that in and, and, and provide it as, as a little micro setting brief or do it as, as a campaign frame like in the back of the Trail of Cthulhu book or a drift like in the back of the Knights Black Agents book. So if there's a, a consulting occultist or Ken's Time Machine segment here in the show that there's a great groundswell for, that that would probably be the format that you would uh, try and go into more depth on whatever that topic was. Right, yeah. If certainly if, if people um, uh, find that they can't get enough of Christopher Marlowe, uh, that putting Christopher Marlowe out as a Ken writes about stuff would be, you know, the, the work of an instant. I don't know to what, what extent one would want to do uh, a whole book or, or a whole 4,000 word uh, supplement on, on Marlowe and the School of Night as a Knight's Black Agents setup, or if it's just more of a thing where here's Christopher Marlowe Here's how to use him in Trail of Cthulhu or Knife Black Agents or uh, uh, Esoterra, even. Right. And any number of possibilities. Or, or you could even do that as a, a, a standalone where you're, you know, how to do Christopher Marlowe consulting detective. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the notion that you're uh, making Marlowe a, uh, an, an action hero or an investigator is, is its own thing. Or that he's uh, the sort of Sherlock Holmes or Doctor Who of the uh, of the setting, and you guys are the ones who have to figure out what it is he wants you to do. Oh, and speaking of uh, Marlowe, uh, we should issue a correction. I failed to uh, catch a slip of the tongue during our Marlowe episode when you talked about uh, Marlowe's Faustus as uh, desiring the fair Marguerite, but uh, longtime listener Michael Kuehl points out that that is the uh, Goethe version, and in uh, uh, the Marlowe version, he's tempted by a vision of Hel Helen of Troy, but he's mostly in it for the magic with a K. Mm. Yes, well, um, uh, uh, Faustus without the fair Marguerite is, as Goethe uh, wisely figured out, a Faustus who does not have what you say, the va-va-voom, uh, to keep people paying attention, I think. So it's, it, if, 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 again, if Marlowe had been interested in fair Marguerites, he might have put one into the, into the play. Right, <laughs> yes, there's the tip-off there. Um, so what did you uh, learn about Deep Ones while uh, reconsidering the, uh, for uh, this project? Um, I learned, first of all, uh, that once you start thinking of Deep Ones in different directions and, and what, can, what might they be able to do, and you start really thinking of it in, in the sort of the mode of a, of a really mean keeper who wants to mess with the players, there's a lot of things that you can give Deep Ones. I also found it very uh, valuable to look at Deep Ones not just as fish and as frogs, but as other kinds of marine creatures and sort of provide a little, you know, 
Maybe your deep ones seem more like alligators, or they seem more like orcas, or they seem more like dolphins. James Wade has a terrific uh, short story called The Deep Ones, which ties them to the dolphins very closely, and I wanted to uh, to make a, a special note of that and and make it a part of the uh, make it make it part of that book. There's certainly lots of very icky sea creatures that, if you make them humanoid and have them chase you, they are terrifying. They are terrifying, and the the um. Uh, <laughs> the, the, I, I know that the dolphins work because I used them in an earlier uh, Call of Cthulhu game in, uh, it, with my University of Chicago group, and they, um, they really, really began to hate dolphins. And it turns out, uh, delightfully enough, that the first successful dolphinarium is uh, marine land in Florida in 1938, and so right in our Trail of Cthulhu era, and you better believe that there's a scenario seed about marine land in the Deep Ones book. Well, you know, the dolphins might just be bearing a grudge after all this time, so uh, we better look at it. <laughs> right. um, so how can uh, listeners to this podcast who want to immediately go and uh, plunk down their money for this exciting subscription series uh, do that? Uh, they can go to the Pelgrane shop and buy it either as a subscription or they can just buy individual issues, uh, whichever way that they would prefer to do it. Um, if you like the idea of a martial arts Zoom, but you're not playing Trail of Cthulhu, you can just buy that. If you uh, like, you know, four or five of them and uh, don't so much like the other four or five, you can buy those. Or if you just think that I'm uh, worth a gambling uh, stamp and seeing what I do every year, you can buy a subscription and Simon will hook you up with uh, a year's worth of uh, the Ken Writes About Stuff PDFs for... Two-thirds of the individual newsstand price. Right. So I think that's a pretty good deal. And we cannot predict the mysterious ways of Simon Rogers, but in the past, he's taken uh, PDF publications, and once he's reached a sort of a critical mass of things that would fit together in an anthology, has brought out a print version. So I suppose it's not inconceivable that some of these will appear as paper products in the uh, in the future distance. I, I would say never say never, but I would say that if you want to see it any time in the reasonable distance, that picking up the individual PDFs is probably the way to go. Uh, that any Hideous Creatures compilation is, you know, minimum, I think, two years out, just because, as I say, they're 4,000 words apiece. Uh, so it's going to take a while to get a number of them that is book-worthy. Uh, well, I think uh, our listeners have uh, been well and truly enjoined, and it's time to move on to our final segment. The picture of Charles Fort on the wall and the red glare of the alien big dog staring in through the window reveals we've once more stepped into the fuzzy confines of the Elliptony hut. This week I thought we would talk about uh, Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock has been the focus of some recent controversy because he gave a TED talk about the attitudes of Aboriginal cultures towards mystical transcendence through psychotropic drugs. And although from what I gather, without having watched his TED Talk, he colored within the lines for the purpose of that 15 minutes, uh, it turns out that his broader body of work is very eleptonic indeed, and so therefore the seeming imprimatur given to him by the fancy-schmancy TED people enraged the skeptic community who kicked up a fuss and got those talks uh, taken down, and then I think they've been shunted off into a newly created Ted Elliptony hut. So, uh, Ken, for those of us who are unfamiliar with uh, Graham Hancock, could you familiarize us? The, the Ted Sirius hut. Um, uh, <laughs> Graham Hancock is uh, one of the uh, foremost uh, purveyors of the ancient astronaut theory, which uh, he generally avoids the astronaut part and just believes that there was sort of a primordial Neolithic culture that built all manner of super magic awesomeness and then uh, got drowned by uh, the pole shift or some equal, uh, equally ridiculous thing. And then we all forgot about it and just go around gazing, gaping at the pyramids, uh, unaware of our uh, indefinably dated ancestors' vast knowledge of the skies, uh, which is all harmless enough, and because he avoids the astronauts, it's not as god-awfully racist as ancient astronaut theory usually is, but is, uh, I think, and it's not his newest book, but it's his book a couple of books ago uh, called Talisman, uh, turned out to be basically an ancient astronaut 
uh, revamp of the good old um, uh, Judeo-Masonic conspiracy theory, and something of a disappointment to me. Not that I felt uh, that Graham Hancock was worth an awful lot as a writer, but one does... One does sigh when the inevitable anti-Semitic memes work their way into the elliptony, because it is time to simply box that off and move on to the next one. And so, uh, do you feel that he's sort of been uh, ineluctably... I guess we're sort of moving toward a thing that you always say, which I don't think we've quite covered on Mm -hmm. the show, which is that all conspiracy theory is ineluctably drawn whirlpool fashion toward anti-Semitism. And so, do you feel that he's just sort of been caught by the tropes and, and pulled in by that? Or, or what is the, the process of, of following his stages basically from a uh, alien astronaut with the serial numbers filed off to this uh, more uh, greasy uh, corner of conspiracy theory? Well, um, I think that what drew him was the notion of the ancient mysteries that are covered up by modern science or that are ignored by modern archaeology and and such and such. And once you begin looking for ancient mysteries and evidence that there was an ancient body of knowledge that is preserved, you're going to stumble upon one of the four or five uh, places that that ancient knowledge is usually stored. And among the places that it is stored is the Freemasonry, which is where he sort of began with his first book, uh, The Sign and the Seal, or his first crazy book, The Sign and the Seal, which is about the Ark of the Covenant being hidden in Ethiopia. And he wrote this back when he was taking a fat check from the contemptible mass-murdering genocidaire Haile Mengistu, who ran Ethiopia into the ground uh, uh, under the, uh, the the Marxists. And uh, he, he took a, a huge amount of money from that guy to wander around and uh, compile a, a history of Ethiopia, basically, suitable for propaganda use. And while doing that, stumbled on the local tradition that uh, the uh, magic box that is held in the Axum Coptic Cathedral is actually the Ark of the Covenant. And he thought that that was a dandy hook on which to hang a bestseller, and he wasn't wrong, because he turned it into a fairly breathless, uh, uh, exciting bestseller of the then I moved into the Holy of Holies and did not know what I saw sort of genre. Um, Before that, he was a journalist for The Economist, and uh, also he worked for, uh, you know, any number of other papers as a uh, as a freelancer on on staff. Right. And, and it's that section of the resume that can still get him invited to a, a TED talk. Yeah. Well, I think that and the fact that he's sold millions and millions and millions of books because the TED guys want uh, eyeballs just like anybody else does. But uh, he uh, probably while he was East Africa correspondent of the Economist is when he got interest captured by the contemptible uh, Mengistu government. And I think that if you were looking for a point at which he stops being reliable, it's at about the point at which he's writing coffee table books for mass murderers. And it is, <laughs> if, if, if you want a, a break point, um, I'm not sure that writing a, in fairness, fairly disguised work of Judeo-Masonic conspiracy theory is as bad as uh, buttering up uh, Haile Mengistu, but neither are the sort of things that should get you invited to TED Talks, regardless of whether or not you're also remarkably gullible about uh, things like the Piri Rais map or the water uh, erosion patterns on the Sphinx. And could you expand on what the first of those two items is? The Piri Rais map is a map that was found in the archives of Constantinople in, I think, the 1920s by an American scholar. It was uh, prepared for uh, the uh, admiral, Piri Rais, who was an Ottoman admiral, and purported to be a map of sort of uh, most of, of the world, and it showed Antarctica as the good old Terra Australis incognita that we all know and love. And according to people who do not understand how map projections work, <laughs> it is a remarkably accurate uh, drawing of the coastline of Antarctica as it appeared before the ice cap came thus proving that people were sailing around making maps of Antarctica before the ice cap came. Now, for this to be true, you have to believe two things. First of all, people are sailing around and making maps a million years ago. So before Cro-Magnons evolve, you have people sailing around making maps of Antarctica, which is ludicrous. Right, but but, but hence your ancient Ur-culture. Exactly. And, and B, you then have to believe that um, uh, all of the places in which the Piraeus map does not, in fact, at all match ancient Antarctica are places that errors were introduced in the copying of it from a million BC down to 15, 
13 or so, which is when it was actually drawn. Right. Well, na- naturally so. The, the right portions are right, and the incorrect portions are incorrect. That goes without saying. It might even be a tautology. <laughs> it, yes. It, it, it's really beneath us to even dis, dis, uh, dispute that, I suppose. But uh, the, the Piri Reis map is, is sort of a smoking gun of uh, the early uh, ancient astronaut set. It showed up in Von Daniken, of course. And a guy named Charles Hapgood uh, wrote a really exciting uh, work of Atlantology called Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, in which he said, obviously, there weren't people sailing around a million years ago. That'd be crazy. Obviously, everything that we know about ice formation is wrong. That's much simpler. <laughs> and um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the poles shifted, and that's why the ice uh, on Antarctica is actually that recent. And before the poles shifted in, I forget what year he put it at. It's, it's around 7,000 B.C., um, and one of the, the tricks, there's a terrific, terrific book um, by a different pair of elliptonists named uh, uh, Picnet and Prince, and they have a book called The Stargate Conspiracy, which implicates their fellow elliptonists in a conspiracy by the New World Order to fake aliens or ancient Egyptian gods. And they spend a good long part of their book debunking other crazy books for you're playing fast and loose with questions like exactly when did this ancient society exist? Because in one part of your book, you say 12,000 BC and another part of your book, you say 6,000 BC. And since no human culture has lasted 6,000 years, you seem to be, you know, uh, getting a little ahead of yourself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But but they're not doing this while at the same time, not being crazy themselves. No, they have their own delightful theory, which is why, uh, they are, they are to be treasured like, like carbuncles. Uh, their um, uh, their their ability to debunk other uh, elliptonists in the service of different crazy elliptony is it, when so many people and Graham Hancock is is certainly after the sign on the seal one of them whose basic claim to fame is that they have rearranged other people's research and gotten a better publishing contract. Uh, his book Fingerprints of the Gods is basically Charles Hapgood uh, crossed with uh, Robert Boval and um, uh, the guy shocked the geologist who believes the Sphinx is eight thousand years old. Um, uh, th- those books are all um, uh, uh, sort of out there in the world. And then what Graham Hancock does is he used his uh, success with Sign and the Seal to get a publishing contract to write a book that sort of just recapitulated everyone else's imaginary research and ties it together with a thin and unconvincing thread. And so he's done that time and time and time again. Uh, he did a, a book called uh, Underworld, which was a fairly good uh uh, job of going around to various uh, gates to hell in the Mediterranean, and that part was interesting, but of course he manages to sort of slather his uh, recycled Von Daniken goo over everything. It, it's a little bit disappointing. And then, like I say, he has a new one that's apparently uh, pretty good because it's a crazy uh, misuse of uh, the uh, anthropologist uh, David Lewis Williams' theory of the origins of religion. So that might be the sort of thing that uh, is worth picking up if people would rather not read hard books on the origin of religion by Davis, David Lewis Williams. But I think that uh, overall, sign of the seal aside, he's basically good as a guy use, whose bibliography you look at to go find out what you should have been reading to begin with on an elliptonic topic. So the uh, an, an uncharitable listener could uh, hear the outline of his career and think that he is uh, something of a chancer who's just sort of uh, bouncing from eleptonic opportunity to eleptonic opportunity. Do you have a sense of his uh, sincerity level? Well, I, you know, I, I, first of all, I'm not sure it makes a huge amount of difference whether or not he's a charlatan or an idiot. Well, but I'm I, always interested in, in in that question as a, yeah. a broader point about uh, human nature and and the extent to which those are mutually exclusive and the. Ex- to which they feed each other. I, I think that someone who starts their career writing a pretty good expose of the international aid uh, apparatus called Lords of Poverty, which is um, uh, actually probably still worth reading, although it's grotesquely out of date now, um, and then is able to convince themselves that there's no fundamental conflict between being a journalist and taking money from uh, and I hate to keep coming back to this, but it really should be a bigger part of his resume, taking money from uh, the guy who caused the famine of Ethiopia, uh, Haile Mariam Mengistu. Uh, I think that's the point at which you have to say, this guy is obviously someone who's able to talk himself into believing things that will make him money. And I suspect that now, you know, you put you strap Graham Hancock into a into a lie detector, and you ask him, do you believe in all this farcical nonsense and he would be able to say yes without raising his pulse rate. Now, whether or not 
he has some sort of conversion experience that allows him to look out over the vast sea of ridiculous belief and say, this is the one that's going to make me money if I trivialize it or mash it up. So I think that his his instincts in what to write about next are still, well, they're proven commercial instincts, because I think every book he's done has been a bestseller. Uh, but I don't know to what extent they come from a a uh, a, a, a pure insanity of belief, like, uh, say, David Icke uh, with his uh, reptoids. I, I think that a lot of it is the process by which he identifies a bestseller and convinces himself it's true is by now so seamless and so practiced that there's barely any difference to him. So is there uh, anything uh, original in his uh, corpus worth uh, rating for our fictionalized uh, works of elliptony and uh, craziness, or is he uh, invariably just a popularizer of other people's madness. I, I think that, uh, like I say, Sign on the Seal is still worth reading. That's something that he was actually on the ground. He was walking around in Ethiopia. He had a, a, a pass from the government so he could go to all these uh, sites that no Westerner was so normally allowed to go to. despite the taint of uh, the funding, it is still worth engaging with? Yeah, and I, well, I mean, I don't think Mengistu paid him to do Sign on the Seal. He was using his access that he got for the coffee table book to research sign on the seal. Oh, and I see. So he was just doing a, a work of straight promotion for the Ethiopian government. Yeah, and then... right. yeah it was pure propaganda. Okay. And then this, because, um, you know, Mengistu had, uh, had many flaws, but I think as a, as a communist, he might not have been that interested in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and so, uh, the, uh, the sign of the seal is, 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 is the closest thing he's come to actually original research. And he did the, he did the walk on the ground. It is a, it, it's a good read. Uh, in the sense of it, the prose is is, is strong. Uh, it's it's that sort of breathless journal, journalistic nonfiction style, um, and it's a it's a good Ark of the Covenant book. I mean, if you are if you are bored with uh, all the other places it might be hiding, he he brings the Templars in, which I I uh, very much appreciate. I think anyone who brings the Templars in is, is worth a nod. So I would say the Sign and the Seal is worth it, and I still like the first half of Underworld, but primarily because I had not read. Uh, the uh, degree in the degree in, in sort of Greek or Roman necromancy that I've read now since having followed his bibliography, basically. But I thought that Underworld actually did a better job of finding more obscure stuff than most of his other things have. Uh, the Message of the Sphinx, you, you can find Sphinx books everywhere. Uh, Fingerprints of the Gods is, like I say, Hapgood uh, recycled. Um, and uh, Talisman, you probably don't want to read the original books that he was using because they're uh, considerably more, they're considerably less subtle. Um, I, I Again, I suspect that uh, this guy, David Lewis Williams' books, are better than uh, Hancock's bastardization of them. Uh, Hapgood is certainly better than Fingerprints of the Gods. But Sign of the Seal, you know, it's still in print, obviously, because it's sold a million billion copies, and you can find it used without any great trouble if you're worried about giving this guy your nickels. So, so if you were to use uh, Sign and the Seal as the uh, seed for an esoterrorist or night black agents uh, scenario, what would you uh, whip up? Well, certainly, uh, given its sort of uh, presence at ground zero of some of the most appalling uh, things in the last 25 years, the Ethiopian famine, the Somali famine, the Somali, uh, basically the collapse of the Somali state, the war in Ethiopia between uh, the rebels and Mengistu, and then between the rebels and Eritrea, uh, basically, you could make an argument that Hancock's action in seeing the Ark triggered, or or was the um, uh, was sort of the the centerpiece, the the focal point of this uh, bursting of the veil in esoteric terms. That there is some dark magic that got opened up, right? Because by he, he got Mengistu cooties on the, on the Ark. He did, yeah. He he got Mengistu cooties on it, and you can you know play around with the um uh, with the uh, with the timing and 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 have the famine either be a uh, an a-causal uh, a harbinger of of the opening, or it can be something that was caused uh, deliberately by you know the the cooties going back in time, or or whatever. But the uh, obviously the the ninety two famine was not the last famine in the Horn of Africa either. And uh, just as a, a footnote before we uh, exit the Elliptony hut, uh, the other person who uh, around whom a TED talk controversy arose was Rupert Sheldrake. Ah, good old... Sh- I didn't even know he was still alive. And uh, so uh, he also got uh, shunted off to the... Uh, to the crazy to, house. To the to crazy house part of uh, TED Talk. So we'll have to do uh, Sheldrake in a uh, future episode. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Sheldrake is, is, is great fun. Um, and Hancock, in fairness, um, Sign on the Seal is great fun. And if you haven't read anything in the genre, 
reading one of his books will be sort of a, an introductory primer and get you going in, in the direction that you might want to do more research. And I, and I do think that between Templar conspiracies and a communist dictator and um, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, you should be able to drive all manner of uh, esoteric and esoterrorist horror uh, out of Silent Seal alone. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Palgrain Press. Music as always is by James Semple. Negotiate with us through your Dragoman at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. Stuff.